Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Last two weeks, it's a third and final on a series of moving from shame to grace. And we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a teenager, 14 years old, maybe 15, found herself pregnant, embarrassing pregnancy out of wedlock. And that culture was uh, a reason for her to be stoned to death. She was shamed by her culture, her religion, uh, her neighbors. I can't imagine what her parents thought. Her whole life had to carry a stigma. Maybe a Roman soldier did it or some neighbor. And, and very lonely birth, poor, uh, in Bethlehem, having to run to Egypt as a refugee for the life of her son. I mean, things were just really bad. It looked like her life was a failure. And uh, yet, we talked about last week and last two weeks how rather than being shamed, she's filled with joy and she sings. And in Luke chapter 1, we see this incredible song. She's just, she's herself. She's not embarrassed. She's not ashamed. Her true self emerges and she, she sings for joy for who she is and what God's done in her life. And we talked about two elements that made that possible. She had a revolutionary view of God. And uh, if you don't put that up somewhere, and uh, that she, she, she knew God was big, and, and um, she, she, um, if you look in the back of your bulletin, there's a, uh, God's, our thinking and God's promises, and while our thinking is it's impossible, God says all things are possible, and, and uh, she, I'm tired, but I can do all things for him who gives me strength, and you see that contrast of our thinking and God's promises, and, and she was just a, a woman who had, uh, just saw how big God was, and she had a revolutionary view of God, it's not there, but it's okay, and um, but she also had a revolutionary view of worth and value, and she wasn't attached to what people thought. She wasn't attached to things or position or power or status, but rather her identity was found in Christ. Now today, uh, she had nothing left to prove. That was kind of the line we used last week. But today I want to talk to you about a revolutionary view of discipleship, which is kind of what this third point is, and I want to just dwell on that in a little bit. Because when we think about what discipleship is, and, and she had a revolutionary view of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, what it meant to be a Christian, and it's revolutionary because so few people uh, do that today. We think of, ah, I believe in Jesus, I, I, my life got changed at a certain date, and that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way now, I'm, I'm going to heaven, I'm comfortable, I'm stable, everything's the same, I like that, but she understood that being a disciple involved change, a lot of change. And it required being teachable, but she had a revolutionary view of discipleship, and it was marked by teachability and, and change. And I want to just read the text, in, beginning at verse 19 of Luke chapter 8. Because you remember, her life starts out great um, in terms of receiving the angel coming and saying she's going to give birth to a son. Nothing's impossible with God. And her response is, I'm the Lord's servant. But then, if you look at her life, it wasn't that easy, and she had to make a lot of choices along the way. And here's one great story about her. Verse 19, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. And he replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now, try to picture the scene. There's people outside the house, 
and there's people inside the house. Mary and her family are outside the house. And the Gospel of Mark tells us they thought Jesus was really losing it. They thought he was besides himself. He'd lost his mind. They were trying to take Jesus and bring him back home. They were trying to control him, what he was doing. They didn't understand what was going on. It didn't look very good. It was causing a big commotion. And uh, Jesus basically uh, tells her mom to let me go. In fact, he's saying, listen, Mary, I am creating a new spiritual family. And it's based on those who hear the word and put it into practice. And so, Mary, although you are my physical mother and you are my natural family, right now I'm creating a new spiritual family. And my mother and brothers and sisters, the new family is all those, regardless of what their nationality, what their physical relation with me is, is those who hear, sit at my feet, hear the word, and do it. And you'll notice that this story comes after the parable of the sower and the seed. And remember the four types of soils, the, the ones on the path, the devil takes it away, the other is rocky soil, the third is thorny soil, and the fourth is good soil. And Jesus says to his mother, basically, it's not that family is negated, but that hearing and doing the word of God is what counts. It's about being good soil. And um, so ultimately, what matters is not this physical family thing, but the word of God and your response to it. Now, Mary, I don't know, if I was Mary, I'd be a little bit upset and run away, say, listen, can I disown you? Or be very angry, begin to yell at him. But, I mean, can't you see her saying, who are you calling mother? I'm your mother. I don't know who's sitting there over there sitting at your feet listening to you, but I'm your physical mother, and, and you know, I went through a lot of hassle with you. Think of the shame when you were born, and I lo my dreams and my visions and goals for life went out the window, and all the rumors that have been spread about me since your birth, and life has been difficult, and I've gone through a lot, and here you are, changing everything. I look kind of foolish. I'm on the outside, and you're telling me I have to humble myself and sit at your feet just like everybody else. And um, in fact, you make me look like a bad mom. And the way Jesus would talk to her at the wedding at Cana, remember Jesus, the mother says to Jesus, there's no more wine, and Jesus says to his mom, woman, why do you bother me? And she can say, you know, Jesus, I still haven't forgiven you for that wedding we went to a few months ago, you know? And, but she, ha she, she, she could be bitter, resentful, uh, blaming, defensive, but she's not. And Mary has to make a choice. In fact, she has to keep choosing to, to let go of a peaceful, cozy Christian life. And she doesn't just choose it when she gives birth to Jesus. She has to choose it all along her journey. In other words, God keeps putting her in these uncomfortable situations where what she thinks is the normal Christian life gets shattered. And how she is living a cozy, comfortable followership of Jesus, he shatters and say, just so you know, Mary, it's not going to be that way. And uh, she's got to let go, even a view of herself. I mean, she's got to look at the ugly parts of herself, the, the sinful parts of herself that want to control Jesus. Because she thinks that Jesus needs her. She doesn't understand that she needs Jesus at this point. And she's got to go through some growing process, and it's going to be painful. And so... Her life is unfolding just like your life is unfolding. And Mary never dreamed that her life was going to turn out the way it did. For many of you already, you never dreamed that your life would have taken you where it is today. But God's got a journey specifically for you. And I can guarantee you this. 
It is not the path that you set out for yourself. But he's going to lead you out of comfort, out of coziness, out of what you would consider stability, into new places that really are uncomfortable and a bit scary. But Mary had to choose to keep growing and changing. If Mary did not choose to keep growing and be teachable and let her thinking be shattered and be changed, she would have been stuck and would never become the great woman of God that we know her as today. But to grow into maturity requires that constant choosing of change that God brings into our life and it requires a lot of teachability. It's very humbling for Mary to not know what Jesus is doing. Do you know something? For many of us, we don't know what Jesus is doing in our lives. All we know is he's doing something, but, he, but we're not sure what he's doing or how he's doing or where he's taking us. But here's the choice you have to make, I have to make it's Christmas, is what are you going to do? Are you going to stay outside the house, stuck into your, whatever your view or place is in your journey with God, or do you go inside the house, humble yourself, sit at Jesus' feet, and be teachable, and then let him change you and bring you to a new place? I mean, for Mary, it kept coming up over and over again. Led to crucifixion of her own son. Then Pentecost, she's in the upper room. I mean, things just kept changing. Her little life in the synagogue in Nazareth, man, she was so far from that. And what I'm saying is where God's bringing you, where God's bringing me, 1999, he's calling you and calling me and inviting us to risk, to teachability and to change. That I can guarantee you. It will look different for different ones of us in this room, because God has got a specific wilderness journey that's just yours. He marks it out specifically. Mary had hers. But what's the same is it's a revolutionary discipleship for all of us. And it's marked by teachability, sitting at his feet, hearing the word, and doing it. So uh, we have to decide, do I take the risk? Now, what does that look like? Well, you know, do I take the path in life where I can earn the most money, get the most comfort, enjoy the most perks, have the most power? Or do I offer my life to God, my time, my talent, my resources, and say, Lord, my life is for you. I am the Lord's servant, and I want to give it fully to you, wherever you want to take it, how you want it to unfold. That's a risk, because at that point, he's leading, you're not. You know, do I take the path of looking at my past the failures, the disappointments, the sufferings, the tragedy, even the sins? And do I become a bitter, angry person about all that stuff? Or do I offer it back to God and let him transform it to something good for my future? It's a choice. It's risky to let him transform it because then you're out of bitterness and you're now free and who knows where God's going to take you. But he begins to use your past for your future. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of my one of famous Russian writer. He writes about it was out of his suffering in the gulag, in the, in the, in the camps of Russia in, in the uh, 40s and 50s, and, for, and seeing the millions perish under Stalin and, and that whole gulag system in which God then set his calling for his future. In other words, it was out of the past that his future calling emerged, that you have to look backwards before you can look forward to where God's going to take you. But it's a whole different way of looking at the past, and God brought some of you to New York City from some strange places. He brought you to himself out of addictions, out of family brokenness, certain nationalities, but God wants to use that for now for where he wants to take you. But it's looking at that, laying it at his feet and saying, God, take it, transform it, and move me and use me for your glory, and I'm ready for change. I'm teachable. I'm open. But God's saying nothing from your past is an accident. I take all of it, 
put it in the mix and weave it for your future. Again, if you're willing to take the risk and lay it at my feet. You know, I, I just finished reading Jimmy Carter's book, The 39th President of the United States, on the virtues of aging. And it's about growing old. And he says, you're old when you stop changing. Some of you are 15, you're already old. You've settled in already. You're stuck in your ways. Some things happened to you in your life. You made some mistakes. That's it. Now you're going to be a bitter, angry, stuck person for the next 60, 70 years. You're already old. And he makes a great point about people in their 80s and even 90s are not old. Because our whole view of life, they're growing, they're maturing, and they're changing. And, uh, you know, do I become a Christian? Some of you are in a place in your journey, it's time for you to surrender your life to Christ. And you have to decide, do I become a Christian? Do I really surrender and say goodbye to the past and open myself up to the new of what it's going to bring? It's a frightening experience. In some ways, it's the safest, but it's scary. That's what Mary had to do, kept doing along the way. I look back at where I was five, six, eight, ten years ago. Spiritually, God keeps opening up new doors for me in my own journey, and it's scary because what I, hung, what I held on to five years ago and ten years ago, my understanding of the Christian faith of what it meant to follow Jesus has all been shattered. And it was good for then, but I realized it's a new day, and God's leading me into new places, and sometimes I get fearful. It's risky. What kind of church are we going to be in five, eight, ten years? As we, can, as we follow the Lord as New Life Fellowship, Queens, New York, where is this thing going? And I realize it's scary because it's not what I thought it was going to be. And it's not what I had laid out. And it's not what it was five years ago. It's a new day. It's 1998. The Spirit of God is moving. Jesus is here. He's taking us somewhere. But sometimes I admit I don't like change. I don't want risk. I want to go back. Some of you, do I break off unhealthy relationships that I know are sick? And do I get myself healthy and say I'm going to trust God for the future to lead me into healthy relationships for his glory. Can I trust them with that, or do I stay stuck in whatever it is, your family of origin system? But Mary slowly grew over time, but God kept testing her and bringing her into these situations. This was humiliating in front of all these people. Who's my mother? It's those who sit at my feet and hear and do the word and put it into practice. And what a humiliating thing to do to her. But she had to have certain thinkings broken in her mind so she could be set free to be the woman God's called her to be. And God leads every one of us to those situations of testing so he can change us. Look at Abraham. He was over 100 years old when God told him to kill his own son. And it was a test. Abraham, Moses, David, Mary, and you. You will have to decide, am I going to have a discipleship marked by teachability and change or not? The sad thing is, for many American Christians, we're rocky and thorny soil. We get stuck. We don't want to change anymore. I've been down that road before. No more change. And we're not teachable. We're no longer good soil. And what happens is the life, the joy, the fruit of the Spirit, the power of God, the glory, no longer flows in and out of us. We become stuck people. But Mary models for us, friends, how to move from shame to freedom and grace. And that is to have a, an understanding of discipleship that's revolutionary. And that is that my life's always going to be about change. And I'm always in a posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus under his word and saying, Lord, shape me, show me, where do you want me to go? And Jesus invites her, come on inside, Mary, and sit at my feet. And Jesus invites you now, and me now, this December 27, 1998, to sit at his feet and to learn from him. And let the word go into your heart in a new way, and let God change you. Let him lead you to new places, new people, new things in 1999. But he has a journey for you, 
And it's not your past, it's your future. It's, the past is over, the present is now. You can only follow Jesus now. And so the Lord wants you to surrender yourself and, uh, I don't know, do you want to do the will of God? Jesus says, listen seriously to the word. Let it tell you what to do and let it tell you how to do it. But Jesus says the, the heart of discipleship begins not by doing anything but sitting at his feet and listening. In fact, if you're listening right now to this story of three verses, you are inside the house. And by faith, if you let these words seep into your soul and let them bear fruit 30, 50, 100 fold, the Lord says, you are my family. You are home. You're my brothers and sisters and mothers. You're in my family. That's how he, that's how he sets the marker in the boundary line. Now listen, Mary chose to ponder and meditate. Some of you have done a lot of good studies on Mary. But if you look at chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the life of Mary, you'll notice that as all these things were going on around her, and angels and wise men and births and all that, it says people were amazed. But it says Mary pondered and treasured these things in her heart. And what, literally what it means is she tried in her heart to penetrate the significance of what was going on around her. She was not a person rushing through life, skimming through life. Remember that message we gave about uh, slowing down and solitude about three, four weeks ago? Well, other people were too busy and had other things on their mind. Mary chose to ponder, to think, to wrestle with the things that God was doing in her life. She was sitting at Jesus' feet, letting these things penetrate her soul deeply, and letting God change her. So God's not calling you to settle down. He's not calling you to get comfortable. He's not calling you to add Jesus into your life. He is calling you to sit at his feet, to be teachable, and to let him change you and take you somewhere. Now, shame can be a bottleneck. Shame can shut you down. And we've been talking about that for the last few weeks. But the gospel sets us free to mature, to grow up, to be the men, to be the women he's called us to be. Jay, why don't you come on forward? And there's a shame of your sin that Jesus sets us free from. And then there's a shame of what other people put on us that Jesus also sets us free from so we can be the person, people he's called us to be. Now listen, we all have to face the shame of sin and guilt. We have to name it, feel it, bring it to Jesus, let him cover it, and then let him set us free like Mary as we're being teachable. Let him change us and take us forward to the future he has for us. And so I want to invite you today to say yes to your future like Mary did here. And sit at the feet of Jesus, let the word seep deep in your hearts, and let him release you from shame and bring you into grace. Now, Jay, for the last year, has been talking to me about shame. And so I've asked him just for a couple of minutes to just share briefly his own testimony of his own journey from shame to grace. So, Jay? Last December, I sat in my pastor's office up there in the mezzanine, and he told me something that uh, made me feel very ashamed. He said, Jay, you need to go get counseling. And my initial response was to feel very ashamed, which is, when you stop to think about it, uh, an amazing thing because I'm a counselor. I'm a pastor. I counsel people. I help people. But what my pastor was saying to me, in effect, was you have a life-controlling problem. You, your life has become unmanageable in a certain area, and you're not making much progress. I see you slipping backwards, and you need to go get 
counseling. And I was ashamed. I was ashamed to ask Fatima, our church secretary, for the number of the counselor. I was ashamed to call the counseling place and make an appointment. I felt, at that point, I felt naked. I felt exposed. My secret is out. I felt I was found out. I was discovered. I felt like a hypocrite. My pastor had told me that I needed to get counseling, which meant to me that I had failed in an area of my life. And in my universe, in my paradigm, if I couldn't solve my own problem, then that meant that I was a failure. And in my, in my universe, my way of thinking, to be less than self-sufficient, to, to have to say, I can't, or to have to say, I need, that was an admission of failure. And failure, to me, meant shame. Well, to make a very long story very short, I did submit myself to my pastor's counsel. I did go for counseling, and it, uh, it revolutionized my life, gave me insights and skills that really began to help me to change. I'm not all better. It's going to take a very, very long time, probably the rest of my life. I just recently entered uh, a program of recovery that's specific to my issue to, to help me along this process of change and teachability. And all of these things taken together, I've begun to experience a healing of my shame. And three points quickly that have really helped me along in this process. The first is that God loves and rejoices in the good things that are in my life. That God loves and forgives the bad things that are in my life. But the third point, most significant, which I never understood before this year, is that God loves and totally embraces the weak and limited and needy and broken things in my life. And most of my life is not really that good and it's not really all that bad necessarily, but most of my life on a day-to-day -day basis is very weak, needy, broken, limited, handicapped. But because God loves and embraces me as that kind of person, I don't have to feel ashamed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that so he wouldn't get a big head, he was given the gift of a handicap to keep him in constant touch with his limitations. He says, at first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove these limitations. Three times I did that. I begged God, and then God told me, my grace, said it to me, my grace, Jay, is enough for you. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness, Jay. Paul goes on to say, once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. And again, to make a very, very long story short, because I began to learn this past year through counseling, through a program recovery, through the, uh, the ministry of a lot of good friends in my life, that I don't have to feel ashamed that God loves and embraces my weakness, my failure, my limitation, my handicaps. Uh, that his love covers my shame. I don't have to feel ashamed anymore. Thanks, Jay. Now, you'll notice on your table is a candle, and there's some bread, and there's a cup of juice. And for those of you in the balcony, it's over there at the... over there in the center. Now... 
the reason that angels broke out in wild rejoicing at the birth of Christ, because this was the key event in human history. This was God entering the world to remove our shame, to remove our guilt, to die on the cross for our sins, to live the life we should have lived, and die the death we should have died. If you remember last week when Peter Cassano got up and shared that little illustration from 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And he gave the illustration of two envelopes, remember? The first envelope contained all of our sin and shame, and he had a very long list. And all of our past deeds, present deeds, and future deeds of not obeying, not having a clean record. And then the other envelope were Jesus' perfect record, having lived a perfect life that we should have lived. And the gospel is that Jesus takes our record of filthy deeds that's in our envelope, and he takes it and puts it in his envelope, and he bears all the sin, and he, all the justice and wrath we deserve for that, he bears. And then Jesus' perfect record in this envelope, he living a perfect life, is put in our envelope. And then, and then as we receive Jesus Christ and become believers, it's called grace. It's called the greatest message in the universe. And God now loves us as he loves Jesus. And, and our, we can stand before God not based on our past, but based on his past. Not based on our name, but based on his name. Not based on our record, but based on his record. And so the gospel is the greatest news that we're at this table. How can you, how can I have the audacity to come to this table and eat as if your life is so great, as if you deserve to be at this table. None of us deserve to be at this table. It's by the grace and mercy of God. That's Christianity. That's the heart of it. It's called grace. And that's what so thrills our heart. Why do we obey? Why do we love the Lord? Why do we use our gifts? It's out of gratitude and joy because the gospel so thrilled and gripped our hearts that we love him passionately. Legalism and law can never motivate like grace. And so it's, we're at this table, all of us carry the deep shame of sin. But it's been placed in his envelope. And because of his blood shed in the cross, we've been adopted into his family. And now called sons and daughters. If you've never done that, receive Jesus Christ now and say, Lord, I thank you for having died on the cross for my sin. Adopt me as your son. Adopt me as your daughter. I want to be your child. And receive the gift of a new heart, a new life. Coming to the table, what a gift to be able to come to this table as you are because of Jesus. So what I want us to do right now is, is meditate, reflect on the gospel that Jesus loves you the same today, yesterday, and 100,000 years from now because it's based on Christ. And so I want to ask you if you're willing. Some of you may not want to take communion. That's okay. Just let it pass by. I want you to take a piece of bread. The worship team is going to come on forward, and we're going to sing. And I want you to take a piece of bread, and not yet, not yet, hold off, guys, relax, all right? And I want you to then dip it in the cup and take communion and pass it around. Now, I don't want you to don't do it like as a rote thing, as a ritual. You want to do it as something meaningful. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is a taste of, meant to be a taste of heaven, that we don't deserve to be at this table, but we are here by grace, and the body represents the life of Jesus that was lived on your behalf. And the blood represents the new covenant, which is now grace. We are under the blood. It was shed for me. And now we're a new spiritual family in Jesus. As Jesus talked about in this text, who are my mothers and brothers? From every nation, tribe, language, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, it's those who've received me, who've received this free gift, 
who've re heard, been under the word and let it sink in who are good soil. So as the worship team leads us in song, I want to invite you to someone, if someone could take leadership at the table, that'd be helpful, and pass it around. And again, if you don't want to take communion, that's okay, all right? That's really fine. You can just pass it by you. Those in the balcony, we have to ask you to take communion. Please rise from your seats and go over to, there's two lovely ladies up there in the balcony, and uh, three lovely ladies, all who will serve you, okay? And, or four, and a lovely man up there, okay? And a lovely one, okay, we'll help you and serve you, okay? Thank you, let's, amen. Thank you. 
Again, Jesus says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. One of the great miracles is the fact that Jesus set about to create a new family from every tribe and nation and tongue of all different people. He wouldn't be here in the room around this table apart from Jesus. And so one of the great things about being a local church is we're a family. And so what we're going to do right now is something very special and very unique, first time in our history. Uh, we're going to continue this service downstairs. And so we're going to invite you to go downstairs to the main dining room. Sit down. Wait, wait, everybody. Wait, wait, relax. We're a time of refreshments, not lunch. <laughs> refreshments and fellowship. Now, there's two questions, and now we want to encourage you to meet some people that you don't know, one or two or three. All right, some of you are more introverted. This is a bit more uncomfortable, but that's part of being a family, all types and ages. That's what makes us the church, and we want you to meet somebody new and then share something you're thankful for this past year. Something, like someone said to me, I'm really thankful for all the pain. I said, God bless you. you know? so, and I, and a, a prayer or a hope you have for this year that's coming up. And now, we don't want you to go pick up your children now. Or if you have children in children's church or in the nursery, lions or eagles, do not pick them up until 1045. You'll hear something will tell you downstairs to go pick them up. But, I'm sorry, 1245. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. So, but we're going to ask all of you to go downstairs. Some of you can go down this way and go downstairs. I need someone at the bottom of that stair to show you how to get to the dining room. And the rest can go that way out these back doors. So, all right. So I want to encourage everyone right now, the two questions, share something you're thankful for, and I hope you have for the new year. And let's all go downstairs to the big dining room. Thank you.